0: you for uh, allowing all of us to arrive here safely today. Thank you for, uh, for gathering us once again um, under your holy word, under your authoritative word, under your uh, true and living word. So God, because of all of that, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to show us from your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may have recognized over the past couple of weeks that faith is an obvious theme in the life of Abram, as it should be for, for someone like Abram, but also as it should be for every believer. So if, if you're a Christian, you're called to a life of faith. Paul reminds the churches over and over again in the New Testament of this reality about Christians. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, uh, the righteous shall live by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, uh, Paul says, We walk by faith and not by sight. And then I know Hebrews 10 is not uh, necessarily attributed, attributed to Paul, but in Hebrews 10, verse 38, the author writes, My righteous one shall live by faith. So this, brothers and sisters, is how we are to live day by day, moment by moment. And it's only by the grace of God that we are able to do that, that we are able to live a life of faith and not a life that is lived uh, primarily by what we can see. And we'll see that in the life of Abram today. But let me just say this as kind of a caveat to the entire message. Uh, Living by faith, is not so that you and I or Abram or anybody else in the scriptures that we read about can cash in, so to speak. That if you have enough faith, then God will bless you with health and wealth. Uh, And and if you don't, if you don't have enough faith, well, you're going to get COVID and you're probably going to be poor. That is not the message that is being proclaimed through the life of Abram. So the main point here is not three ways to walk by faith. The main point of the text that we must see is that God, for the sake of the promise of his son, moves in certain ways in the lives of his people. And he does that for their good and for your good. Yes, that's correct. You will benefit. You will be blessed by God because of that. But ultimately, the reason God does this is for his glory. So we see that in three ways today in the text we see it through restored worship, we see it through renewed faith, and then we see it through remembered promises. So, restored worship, renewed faith, and remembered promises. And those are in your worship guide if you're taking notes. So, first, restored worship. Because of the grim place that we left off last week, we kind of left with a little bit of a cliffhanger and we left in a, in a pretty dark place for, for Abram. Essentially, where we leave Abram is a man who has just failed in his calling and he is heading back home, wandering back to his home uh, with his tail between his legs. He has been humbled. He has been shamed. So I think it's important to see how our man Abram responds to his restored faith, the faith that God restores in him, by restoring worship in his own heart and life. So one quick observation to point out, and maybe you already caught it, is that the entirety of our text this morning has the bookends of worship. So in verse 4, we see that, that Abram is, has headed back to the, to the place where he first built his first altar, and he calls upon the name of the Lord in verse 4. And then in verse 18, the final verse of the text this morning, Abram is worshiping again. So the framework of the text is worship, but also the framework of Abram's life is worship. So this is already telling us that even though Abram, so maybe you're, you're like me and you're, you're already in your Bible reading plan and so you're hopefully well ahead of where we are in, well actually if it's the 16th, you're probably right up to where we need to be. I'm a little bit ahead. But, but you'll see, even as you march through the book of Genesis, that Abram will have some further mishaps. He's not a perfect man. He's going, he is going to continue to sin and fall because he is a sinful and broken human being just like you and I are. But one thing that we have to notice here that is really crucial and important is that the Abram of chapter 13 that we just read about is a different Abram than we saw at the end of chapter 12 last week. And this is due, by and large, to Abram's restored faith that God restores and then to how Abram responds to his restored faith. And you can see this just simply just by observing his travels in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. Because the purpose of his travels is to get back to the place of worship, to where it all began back in chapter 12, verse 8, where he built his first altar and first called upon the name of the Lord. That's where Abram is headed back to. He recognizes his need to be close to God. So his his physical state changes. He moves back. But also in this physical state changing, his spiritual state has changed as well. Look at verses 1 through 4. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So here is a man who has been changed by God's grace. Remember, Abram did not deserve what God did for him back in Egypt. Abram deserved to die. But here is a man who is no longer putting his faith in himself and his schemes, but he's putting his faith in God. Here is a man who is, what we're seeing here, who is recalibrating his heart back to the Lord. Now this is an argument from silence, um, but I'm sure part of Abram's worship involved confession of sin. And through this confession of sin, because Abram had sinned greatly against the Lord back in Egypt. But through this confession of sin, a a restoration by God to full communion with him happens. And that's not only true for Abram, but that's also true for us. When we come, uh, not just on Sunday mornings, to confess our sins together corporately, which is a good and right thing for us to do, but also as we enter into that time of silence where we are confessing our sins before God because you know the, the specific sins that you have and that you wrestle with. I don't know all those things about you. God is restoring you back to communion with him when you do that. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our, uh, us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to do that. Because the just thing to do because of what Christ has done, the just thing for God to do now when we confess our sins is not to destroy us, but to forgive us. And all we have to do is confess. As one pastor put it, he says, he said, the only way to get back to the will of God is to go back to the very cause of the departure confess it, forsake it, and return to the place of fellowship. Did you know that you have the opportunity to do this every week in weekly worship, weekly corporate worship? Every week. You have this opportunity that is carved out for you by God himself from the very beginning of creation, before the fall. God gives us the Sabbath day, and he gives us a Sabbath day so that we can recognize uh, our own need of a Savior, but also to rest in that reality, to rest in that truth, and then to respond how Abram responds in our text in worship. I wonder if this is how you see worship every week as a place where you can come and uh, safely confess your sin and, and return again and again week after week to the place of fellowship that God has given to you, a place where renewal is. So here we have, here in this place, in this school cafeteria, we have our own altar, so to speak. within within the local church. That is is what is taking place. We have this place of worship that we come to uh, each week to to, to worship the living God corporately. That is a privilege that we are allowed to do that. That we have a day that God has given to us that is set apart specifically for the dual task of rest in the gospel and worship of the God who renews us. That's why we have the Sabbath. And it doesn't take much to get here either. I mean, I know there was a little bit of rain, and it was a little bit colder than normal in Augusta today, but we're not traveling with large caravans to get here. We're not, we're not traveling with, with servants. We're not traveling with a, a load of animals and riches like Abram was. So don't skip out on this opportunity that God has given to you. Don't uh, uh, take, it, take advantage of it. Use it to its fullest. Think about ways or figure out ways um, with your family or as an individual to maximize this day that God has given to you to specifically worship Him. Well, because Abram's worship is restored, it flows naturally into his faith in God being renewed. And one way that we can see see how uh, Abram's faith is renewed is by contrasting it with his nephew's own lack of faith. So look at verses 5 through 7 for our second point. Or 5 through 13, but I'll read 5 through 7 right now. So Lot is Abram's nephew. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So in these verses here, we are uh, let in on a problem that has arisen since Abram's return from Egypt. So Abram returns from Egypt, a very wealthy man. We know that because uh, Pharaoh gives him gifts, gives him riches, gives him uh, servants, and he is carrying all of this back, plus everything else that he had, back to the land in which God had brought him to, where he meets up again with his nephew Lot, who is also very, very wealthy, who also has lots of servants, who also has lots of livestock. And so the problem that is presented to us here by the author is The land cannot support both of them. And they see that because war is about to break out between both sets of families. And not only that, in verse 7 it tells us that there were other people living in the land as well. So it was starting to get very crowded for both Abram and Lot to sustain their families and to sustain their livestock and to live together in peace. Yet we see, although you might think, wow, that's a lot of information there. Why is all all of that important? Well, the strife between his nephew shows us how Abram's faith has been renewed. It shows us how Abram's faith is starting to grow since his time in Egypt. Now look at verses 8 through 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So in Egypt, last week we saw that in Egypt, we saw Abram take matters into his own hands. He was presented with a situation. He was presented with a problem, which was uh, we, there is a famine in the land. There is a famine in the very place that God had brought us to where he said he was going to bless us. There is no food available. So Abram takes matters into his own hands. He, he pursues things in a selfish way. He, he, he wants to save himself. He's looking out for number one. That's what we saw Abram doing last week. But here we have the opposite taking place. Abram takes the initiative in verse 8 to resolve the problem between him and Lot. But instead of looking out for himself, instead of him saying, hey, you know what, God has promised me this land, instead of him just saying, he kind of capitalizing on this promise that God has given to him, instead of doing that, Abram says to Lot, look, you can have first dibs on the land. I mean, it is spread out before us. You can see every part of it. You know what is the best land that's here. And and whatever land you choose, I'll choose the opposite. I'll get away from you. I'll make it easier for us to be able to live in this area together. So as the older of the two men, Abram uh, would have been well within his rights to choose first. That was well within his rights. Lot could not argue that. Abram could have chosen first, but instead, Abram gives Lot first priority. Now, this gesture shows us that Abram uh, was now actively believing God's promises to him. that, That God will give his offspring this land, including the land that Lot took. So Abram didn't need to concoct a scheme or, or try to control the situation to kind of protect himself and to protect his land. By faith, he leaves it in the hands of God. By faith, he leaves the decision in the hands of God. Now, I wonder how often you are presented uh, with predicaments like this in your life. Maybe, for example, maybe a financial need arises with someone uh, maybe in, in this church, uh, financial need arises, and maybe your first thought is not, here is the money you're, you need, no questions asked, we want to provide for you, we want to give it to you. But rather, maybe your thought process is, I've been saving this money for that vacation. Or I've been saving this money for that new something or other that I want. I couldn't possibly dip into that saving." Or maybe it's time. Maybe for some of you, you uh, heard me say something about uh, biblical theology class and said, man, you can really grow in your knowledge of the scriptures and you will grow as a believer. And in your mind, you're you're thinking, the first thing you think about is not, man, that sounds wonderful, is I don't have time for that. Are you kidding me? 8.30? That means I have to get up at 8 instead of 9. And so you say, I don't have the time for that. I have too much to do. Or maybe it's in relationships. If I give myself to that person who, is, uh, who I find, honestly, particularly annoying, I think their problems are uh, minuscule. I think they complain too much. I don't like being around them. And if I give my time to them, I won't be able to be around other people who are a little bit cooler, a little easier to be around going to take away. So instead of walking by faith in those particular areas, instead of trusting God for your financial provisions, or trusting God for uh, your time, or trusting God in the relationships that God has put you in, you walk instead by sight, and what that is doing, or what that is saying is you are looking out for yourself and not those around you. Or we could say, biblically, that instead of walking by faith as Abram was doing, you walk by sight as Lot does in verses 10 through 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his, his tent as far as Sodom. And the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. So what we're seeing here is more than just a business deal between family members. What we're seeing is faith exemplified by Abram is a life of what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. says, what Hebrews This is how Hebrews 11.1 one defines faith. The assurance of things hoped for, or you could say the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what we're seeing here right now in Abram's life. Or as one commentator put it, this was in the ESV Study Bible commentator, so if you have that, it's written there for you, but uh, this commentator said, biblical faith, is not a vague hope grounded in imaginary, wishful thinking. Instead, faith is a settled confidence that something in the future, something that is not yet seen but has been promised by God, will actually come to pass because God will bring it about. And we see both of these extremes in our text. Look at the language used by the author in verse 10. He says simply, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. So what we are seeing there is that Lot depends on his eyesight rather than on the promises of God, which I'm sure he knew. That had to be a hot topic, a conversation between the families, there are several red flags throughout verses 10 through 13, maybe you caught these, that lets us know that Lot's eyes are leading him away from God's blessing and not towards it. So red flag number one is in verse 10. And we see this, this red flag when Lot, he compares the land. So he's looking out, you can imagine they're, they're kind of o- overlooking the land. They're at a vantage point where they can see pretty clearly, as far as the eye can see, the land that is available to the both of them. So they're looking out over the land, and you can see kind of imaginatively Lot looking out over this land, and the reason he chooses it is, be one, because he thinks it looks like the Garden of Eden, which, if you remember, is a place where mankind was banished and cursed. And then he describes it as looking like Egypt, and if you remember that from last week, is a place where Abram was met with spiritual failure. So Lot is already kind of headed in the wrong direction. Then you have red flag number two. In verse ten and verse thirteen, there are there are slight warnings and foreshadowings. Uh, uh, concerning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you know about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so our author here is hinting at uh, what is going to take place in the next several chapters concerning these important cities. So we won't go into great detail about these two cities uh, because we'll be looking at these in the coming weeks. But one one thing to keep in mind is that Sodom and Gomorrah are not good places. In fact, they were the epitome of evil. And that's why we still refer to certain cities in, in our country as Sodom and Gomorrah. We, if we want to define a place as evil, that's typically what we will go to. So the author is very clear to, as to the hearts of those in the city. In verse 13, he says, The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against evil the Lord. So these were people who knowingly and consciously walked against God. They they knew that they were they wanted to be enemies of God. They were proud that they were walking in the direction in which they were walking. They ignored God's ways. They didn't care about God's ways and they did what was right in their own eyes. They were evil. This is how Paul describes this sort of person in Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, perfect description of Sodom and Gomorrah, a perfect description of the direction in which Lot is headed. Red flag number three, in verse 12, the second part of verse 12 there, tells us that Lot journeyed east. Now this might not seem like much, but it's actually a significant detail about a direction that is associated in the scriptures with curse in the but specifically the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, after Cain has murdered his brother, it says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what this direction signifies, and the reason why our author Moses puts it here, that's a small detail, is that it signifies A moving away from the Lord. Remember last week that we learned that every event in your life, every event in life that you are posed with can either draw you to God or draw you away from Him. Every event in life, you have that choice. So body language speaks volumes, whether you like it or not. So if you're one that doesn't think if you cross your arms that you're being distanced, I mean it really does, it does communicate. You can communicate distance and, and boredom simply in the way that you move yourself. And this is exactly what our author is seeking to communicate: that even in the direction that you walk, can signify you walking away from the Lord. So, are you walking? Are you walking east toward evil? Are you walking east? Are you are you trying to get away from the Lord? Or are you trusting God? The direction in which he will take you. Now, for some of us, our problem with persistent sin, and you know, I've, I've you know, meeting with people as a pastor, you you hear things that people struggle with. You know, I have my own sin struggles that are just constantly nipping at me. But sometimes the reason we have a problem with persistent sin in our life is not necessarily the sin in and of itself existing in our life, and we know it's there. It's that we continue to walk towards the sin and not away from it. We continue to engage it. We continue to try to kind of manipulate it, for it uh, so it'll work in our favor. That never works. You're walking east. You're walking away from a relationship with God, not towards one. Paul says this concerning temptation in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13 through 14. This is a church, Corinth was a church that was constantly met. It was corrupt. It was corrupt. Sexual, sexual sin was running rampant through the body. And this is, this is Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In a major way we do this, a major way that we can see, have eyes to see the escape from sin, the escape from temptation. He's not even into the sin category yet. In First Corinthians, Paul is saying that God will get is one step ahead of the sin that you were about to commit. He's going to give you an escape from the temptation. And the only way that we can see that is with eyes of faith. The only way that we can do that is if we believe that God has done this and does this for us. Believing that it, it is it is God's God's way that will that will ultimately bring you true satisfaction and true joy and true fulfillment and not your indulgence in your sin. It will constantly leave you. Back to Abram's example. In contrast to, to his nephew's choices, Abram is prepared to trust God enough to allow Lot to take the best land that lay before the both of them. So Lot's choice, just so you know, Lot's choice left Abram with a land that was not rich and not very fertile. You could say just to liken it to, to Georgia. It would be like uh, putting a, a farmer on, uh, instead of putting them on like, good, soft, fertile ground, you're putting them on top of just Georgia red clay. Impossible, almost impossible to farm or have any, anything to grow. This is where Abram was left. But because his faith was renewed, because he he had reestablished the worship of the true and living God in his life, he knew that God would still fulfill his promises and give him the land. So last week we saw Abram lack faith, and that lack of faith could have ended in disaster for not only Abram's family, but also for us. He chose to be in control rather than trust God. But here, he gives up control in order to trust God. So this is not a man who is pulling himself up by his bootstraps either. This is not Abram saying, i got to get my life together. This is a man who has been humbled by God Almighty, crushed under the hand of God. This is a man who is brought back to true reality through worship. This is a man who has had his faith restored by God so that he has the clarity again to trust God, even when he couldn't see everything that lay before him. And it's in our final point here that we see all of this confirmed in Abram's life through God's remembered promises to him. So in the conclusion of this incident, in, those last, in verses 14 through 18, we see that Abram ends up back where he started, back in chapter 12, verse 1. And God shows him this by reminding him of his promise of both land and offspring. So look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, and eastward and westward. So to begin with, we need to see that the contrast between Lot's sight in Abram's sight is drastic. And we can say there are two different things. So the author tells us in verse 10 that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw. In contrast to that, here in verse 14, the author tells us that the Lord lifts up Abram's eyes. So what this tells us is that there are two ways in which you can look at the world that we live right now. You can can look through your own foggy, misconstrued, blurry eyes, or you can look through the eyes of the Lord. You can allow Him to lift your eyes. You can allow Him to point to what He wants you to see. That's when I say, I say this all the time, I'm talking about reality and true reality. The only there is, there is a reality in which we all live. This is all, this is all real. This isn't the matrix. We are all real people, you know, flesh and blood and bones here before us. But there is also a greater reality that those of us who know Jesus uh, are knowing and understanding more and more. And when we allow God to lift our eyes, we allow him to, we allow him to show us what true reality in the gospel is. We can see through the brokenness. We can see through the fog. So are you lifting your eyes and seeing? Or are you allowing the Lord to lift your eyes to see? Or to ask it biblically, uh, do you find that your default to be walking by sight or walking by faith? What does that look like? Well, you see it in Abram's life. Bo- both of these you see in Abram's life. Abram uh, is an example of both. Last week we saw him walk by sight, so he's presented with a problem, and his first reaction is to say, uh, How do I manipulate this situation to get out of it? How do I manipulate the situation to save my own life? I mean, I'll even sacrifice my beautiful wife for my cause. And then, this week, we see him walking by faith. We see a man who has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now he says, What do you want me to see? What do you want me to see? But we also see this pattern throughout the Bible where where God commands us to see certain things. It is God who is is lifting our eyes, and he is saying, Look here. This is what I want you to see. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 26 through through 28, God says to us the same thing he says to Abram. Lift up your eyes on high and see. And then he asks a question. "Who Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's speaking about the stars. He's speaking about the heavens there. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And God was telling us, the way that you understand that is you just look up to the stars. You look up to the heavens. Psalm 19, 1. Uh, behold the, the, you're beholding the heavens, beholding the glory of God at the exact same time. Then you have in Matthew chapter 6, you have Jesus speaking here. Chapter 6, verses 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Anxiety is rampant in our culture in the year 2022. We need to hear these words from Jesus, and where he's telling us to look. Why are you anxious? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider which means thoroughly examine carefully. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't do anything. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, King Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes. Close the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is, is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, a you of little faith? So where does God? Where does where does Jesus say to set our eyes? He says to set your eyes on a flower. To remind yourself not to be anxious. To remind yourself that God will care for you, no matter what. Then you have Peter great example of, of when Peter is walking on water when he they see Jesus approach the boat and Peter says Jesus call me to you I want to walk I want to walk on water to you I want to I want to behold your glory here and he does for a minute he has his eyes set on his savior he has his eyes set on the one the only one who could allow him to do such a miraculous thing but then it tells us right there in the same text that, that Peter, looking around at the storm, gets afraid, and then lacks faith in the Savior. Takes his eyes off of Jesus and almost drowns because of now Maybe you're the one who needs to hear this today. Maybe your vision is entirely on yourself or your current situation, and these are the words that you need to hear today. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Look to the lilies of the field. Look to Jesus, your Savior, who reminds you over and over again to consider how great God is and how deeply He cares for you. Well, because Abram's vision is cast in the right place and is now walking by faith again, we see that it restores him back to a right relationship with God. And the way we know this is because of God's reminders in verses 15 through 17. So we know it because of two reminders that God gives him, and then we also know it by one way in which Abram responds. So look at verses 15 through 17 and see those two reminders. "'For, the, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever,' I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So not only does God reveal to Abram his promise again, because we need to be reminded, but he also gives him the sight that he needs both imaginatively in his own mind, but also physically. So in verse 16, uh, God gives Abram this imaginative outlook on just how many people he is talking about when when he said back in chapter 12, verse 3, I will make of you a great nation. So God says in verse 16, this is what I mean when I tell you this. This is how many people I'm talking about here. Imagine this. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. That's an incredible picture. It's it's a mind-blowing picture. Something that Abram could not even comprehend. God is saying to him, I will bless you so abundantly I will bless you so abundantly with offspring that you won't, you can't even fathom the number. You don't even understand what I am about to do through your line. So that's imaginatively, and then and then physically, God simply has Abram walk through the length and the breadth of the land that He will give to him and, and to his offspring. It's just simply like, just take a walk. Just walk as far as you can, the length of it, the breadth of it. See how long it is. See how wide it is. And this is the land that I am giving to you. This is the promise. And the the reason we know that Abram believed all of this is found in Abram's response in verse 18. Look there. It says, So Abram moved his tent, and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So, so we opened it with Abram in worship, and now we close with Abram in worship. And this is, an import, this is an important piece of the story because it, it's worship that frames not only our text, but it's worship that frames Abram's life. It's, it's worship of the true and living God That sets his heart back in the right place. It's it's worship that gives him the eyes of faith. It's worship, if you're reading ahead in Genesis, that keeps Abram faithful to the end. So, how does worship do this? True biblical worship does this by allowing you to encounter the greatness of God. So if our goal in worship, if your goal in worship is only to have an emotional, feel-good experience, you won't get to this place of encountering the greatness of God. If that is your end game, you won't get to that. And if you've stuck around CTK for, for, for very long, you know that you're not necessarily going to get that here. No offense to anybody who leads worship, even anybody. Because that's not what worship is necessarily for. If your goal in worship is to be entertained, you will miss it. D.A. Carson, in his book, Worship by the Book, defines worship as this. He says, "Uh, worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient, which means feeling, beings to God ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God, precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. And this side of the fall, human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. So what worship is, not corporately, but also individually, what worship ultimately is is, your, is, a redemptive, is a response to the redemptive provision that God has made for you in Christ. That is what should move you in worship. This is exactly what Abram experienced. He was able to properly respond because he knew, by faith, that God's redemptive provision was coming in Christ. He knew the promise of Genesis 3.15, which is, if you remember that far back, when the the first promise of the gospel is given by God, right after the fall, God says, in his grace and mercy, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Abram, Abram understood that promise was going to come true in Christ. This is why his life was framed by worship. He understood the greatness of God every day, moment by moment. Now, let me just leave you with a couple of questions to ponder today and this week. How is your life framed? What what frames your life? Is it work? You know, status? Uh, Relationships? Is Is it wealth? What frames your life? Is it framed by worship of the true and living God or is it framed by some other idol that has captured your heart? How do you respond to the greatness of God in your own life and this is this is a question for those who, who have been a believer for many years but this is also a question for those of you who are just now starting to, to, to be curious about Christianity. This is called common grace. God is is at work in your life right now as we speak. You are not absent from God's greatness at work in this world. How do you respond to that? Is it to be like Sodom and to turn your back and and to live in the way that you want? Or do you respond through worship and drawing close to God? And I ask these questions because... Whether you're a Christian or not, you have to wrestle with them. Because it's God's desire, the scriptures say that it is God's desire that all men and women be saved. And it's his desire that we would all respond. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your true and living word again that uh, has been proclaimed to us so many years ago, thousands of years ago. We <coughs> we read this story of redemption that has taken place, God. We are so grateful that it is it is it is you that 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 renews us, that it is you that that restores us back. Uh, to a right relationship with you when we have fallen away. That it's you that saves us through your son, Jesus Christ. That it's you who establishes our steps. That it's you who um, remains true to the promises that you have given, not only to Abram, but also to his offspring, which includes us. That your word says that, that, that you, are, you are faithful to complete the good work that you have started in us. So, God, I pray for those of us who are believers in Christ. Uh, I pray for those who that that, that this that this message may have, have uh, begun to, to grow a bit stale in their life. I pray that you would restore them, that you would renew them. I pray for my friends here who, who don't yet know you and who are wrestling with these questions of how to respond to the greatness of God. I pray that they would hear the words of Christ and respond. Um, by belief. Jesus says, today is a day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. And I pray that that would be true for some uh, in this room today and at the sound of my voice. And we pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus.